Welcome to episode 77 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm good. You know what time of the month it is. It is that time of the month. <laughs> it is time. <laughs> All of our women listeners just left. Gone. I have a the new denial that we had. for the evening. Wow. Yeah, so to dispel any further confusion or innuendo, I was talking about question cast yeah. time of the month. Mailbag, yeah. Question cast. Oh, it's man. already off to a great start. We if are. we edited, this probably would not even be included in the episode but hashtag we're without a net no net no net so right before we started recording i said hey tony you want to affirm and deny some stuff and you were just basically like yeah sure let's (laughs) let's do it (laughs) again no prep yeah so would you like me to go first with an affirmation this week please do all right so this week i'm affirming with God's healing through contemporary medicine. Just because I've had a lot of friends recently who have undergone some, what we consider now standard procedures, but it is so great that we just live in a day and age with access to all kinds in, in a place for that matter, not just the time we live in, but the place we live in, where we can get amazing medical treatment and yeah. God does some incredible healing through those quote unquote ordinary means. Yeah. Isn't that so, the truth? I'm really thankful for that. In fact, I don't know if you ever feel this way, but sometimes I look back on a period in history and I think, man, it'd be so great to live in that era. And then this is what happens. I think of this word, anesthesia. Yeah. (laughs) Carl Truman talks about that. People ask him what his favorite era of history would be to live in. And he's like, this one that has antibiotics and flush toilets. I know. It's just like, there is something romantic about different eras in time. Yeah. Man, that anesthesia, I just, sometimes I just want to be put out if you're going to be doing something weird to me. Yeah, absolutely. Not like in a abducted by aliens kind of way weird, just. (laughs) This is a strange podcast this evening. (laughs) It's Q&A. It's that time of month. It is. All right. So over to you. You have something you want to affirm? Yes. So I am going to affirm Amazon Prime. So, um, my birthday was last week, which was excellent. And Happy birthday. Uh, I got Amazon gift cards, which is like every book buyer's dream. And I had some Amazon money from like a work wellness program, which I know you think those are terrible ideas, but I'm a participant and I got some Amazon money. So I was able to order, uh, the Christian's reasonable service by Wilhelmus Abrockel, which That's is a an great amazing name. work and it's a great name. But I ordered it on Thursday and I had it on Saturday. And it's like, what a world we live in that I can get like old school Dutch systematic theology from the Amen. 90s, printed in or translated in the 90s, and I can get it pretty much whenever I want it. Amen. And so. that's a huge, that's like a tome, right? Oh, Those yeah, books? for sure. It's four big volumes that are, each of them is at least as big as um, the largest bobbing volume so they're they're pretty significant yeah like the dude that delivered that thought you ordered a microwave yeah i have this i have this really ambitious reading goal to get through all of bovink all of voss and all of brockle a brockle by the end of 2019 so that is legit and you're not gonna quit your job i presume i'm not gonna quit my job no i may go crazy but i'm not gonna quit my job I love it. That's some now. That's a real reading ob- objective for 2018. Mm-hmm. Tim Challies, eat your heart out. Well, it's 2019, so I've got. I'm I'm planning out two years at this point. No, I just committed. I'm sorry. That was me committing you to 2018. Oh, that's not get after happen. it. I'm not going to be able to podcast anymore, Jesse. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't even be enough, actually. Yeah, those are some serious works. That's good stuff, though. I totally am with you on that. Amazon Prime. I mean, can you think of anything that's been more of like a game changer in terms of getting things that you want as Amazon prime has been. No, I mean, it's a hundred dollars a year. It's completely worth it. We don't get any, well, we do get credit from Amazon if you buy something through our link, but we don't get any commission on Amazon prime, but yeah, it's totally worth the money. It absolutely is. So this week 
I'm denying against overcomplicating the gospel. And this is kind of like a Jesus juke. I apologize. Yeah. I'm trying to like one up this process, but I was thinking a lot about just how sometimes in my own mind, I get so caught up in all the wonderful nuances of the gospel that I just forget. It's just really good news. Like in its simplistic form. Yeah. It's just really great stuff. And there's a lot of craziness in the world and we could all use some good news and be reminded that we don't graduate from that. So I'm just dying against making it too complicated. Yeah. Yeah. But absolutely. You? Um, I am denying taxation because as we all know, <laughs> taxation is theft. So in New Hampshire, we don't have income tax, which is nice. And we live in the church building, so we don't pay property tax, which is very nice. But we have a vehicle and you have to register your vehicle. And so I have to pay the state for the privilege, the privilege of driving on the road. And then I have to go to my mechanic and I have to pay my mechanic to tell my tell the state that my car is okay to drive on their precious roads. Right. So it's just so much for live free or die. It's like live expensively and give all your money to the government and then die. And then die. Yeah. Without so any money. I'm denying taxation. And I'm not even a libertarian. Uh, that made me laugh so hard because I, one, didn't expect that. And two, you came at that like so straight faced <laughs> and just even paced in your like expression. It was just kind of like, I just ad- deny all taxation. Yeah. So here's the thing we should clue people in real quick. So to like help explain, I think, why you're denying that so vehemently is because in New Hampshire, there is no income tax. So right. you feel like, well, this is a great place to live. And there's very little sales tax. It applies to only a handful of things. Yeah. So you think, well, this is a great place to live. But it's one of those situations where they just get you either coming or going. So yeah. I'll, I'll use myself as an example, and I'll disclose these real numbers. So in most other states, you go to your Department of Motor Vehicles, and you pay like a small fee to register the car. That's pretty normal. And that yep. can range from anywhere from like 50 to like on the high end, maybe $100. In New Hampshire, here's how it goes. You walk into like your town selectman's office. You have your vehicle. You have all the paperwork. You say, I want to register it. And they'll be like, okay, that, there'll be two, two checks that you have to write out or there'll be two charges. One to the state, one to the township. Yep. So you're like, okay. So they'll be like, all right, so the state is like, and it's the, the amount of the tax depends on the age of the vehicle. The, it's it's the blue book value. Yeah, it's the value yeah. of the vehicle. Exactly. So- There'll be two checks. So let's say you owe the state like thirty-four ninety-five. It'll be some random number, and they'll be like, "And the ta- the check for the township should be made out for six hundred and fifty-four dollars <laughs> and twenty-two cents." Yeah, they really get you. They they do, and like the worst is they make you pay for the registration before you get the inspection. You can't reverse that order. So last right. year when we had to register our cars, um, I registered my vehicle and paid for the whole price of it. And then, you know, they, they say like, okay, you got to put your tabs on right away. So then they take it to the inspection place and they're like, yeah, it's not going to be worth it to fix this vehicle. So I paid for the <laughs> registration and I registered a car for a year. And I literally, the only place that I drove it from was from the town hall to the place where they do the inspection for them to tell me that they it was too expensive to fix. And then right. I called the place. I was like, oh, hey, yeah, my car's not going to be worth it. They're like, well, did you put the tabs on? You're like, well, yeah, you told me to. Oh, yeah, then we're not going to take it back. <laughs> so yeah just so everybody could feel your pain in a real way i wanted to know it's we're not talking about a small fee for registration that's yeah. how the state and the town makes their money because there's the, all the, the other sources of typical revenue aren't present so yep yep i'm with man we just went all over we did well this has been a great podcast Tony. <laughs> <laughs> we've been everywhere What's- Let's get to some questions before, because clearly you and I, without a game plan, will just end up all over the place. Yeah, we're going to offend everybody. From anesthesia to libertarianism, we got you covered. We do. So we've been pleading with people because it's our regular rhythm now to have one episode a month at the end of the month that we record, where we just kind of have some conversation around feedback from people who are listening who want to get involved in the conversation. So please call us and leave a voicemail or shoot us an email with either question or observation. And before we even get to any of those, give them the number, Tony. 607-444-2767. That is 607-444-BROS. 
Yeah, I feel like we maybe didn't appropriately early on say that whenever somebody says like bros underneath that number, it's because the last four digits are B-R-O-S. Yeah, yeah, which is amazing. I don't know how it I is managed amazing. to get those numbers. I mean, I know how I got those numbers. When you register a Google Voice number, you can type in a word, and but I'm amazed that that was available. Yeah, I was absolutely amazed as well. I don't know if people actually still look at their phones and look at the like letters that correspond to the numbers, if that's a thing still, but whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I remember when you used to have to call on like old school touch phones, like old school like wall phones. You had to like be really intentional and had to like think through it. Yeah. I don't, well, either way, call us, leave a voicemail, join the conversation. So with that said, let's kick it off. You ready for a voicemail, Tony? Let's do it. Hi, Jesse and Tony. My name's Ryan. I'm calling from Central Florida. I have began listening to your podcast about three months ago, and I have loved it. So I really want to say thank you guys for doing that. I really appreciate it. Um, one thing I've been learning lately, or trying to learn, really, is this whole covenant theology thing. Um, I've been exposed to the Reformed Baptist folks and the Reformed Presbyterian folks, and when you guys spoke on one of your recent podcasts about that actually being your two backgrounds, I thought maybe you guys could help me. Help me understand how one, what the real differences are between a, someone who affirms the London Baptist con- Confession of 1689 and then the standard Westminster, because I am trying to understand why they're different, why they interpret the verses that they do differently. And it is difficult. So could you guys handle that one and explain it to me so I can stop trying to figure it out? Thank you so much. All right. So Ryan is kicking us off hardcore here. (laughs) This is a great question. Yikes. (laughs) So this is basically like, let's unpack the main differences between the London Baptist Confession, and he references 1689 specifically. So in case you wanted to go to any other year, let's stay there (laughs) and contrast that or compare it with Westminster Confession of Faith. So why don't we just start with, in your mind, what are kind of like the overarching differences between those two confessions? Yeah, so I'll be the first first person to say um, the specific elements of covenant theology, um, there are some differences, but this is not an area that I'm super well studied in. So um, I will point you to two resources. Um, The first is 1689federalism.com. And the numbers are numbers not spelled out. And um, they have all sorts of great charts, um, book recommendations. They really go into it. The second is an episode of a new podcast um, called According to Christ, and it's episode three. And they had Brandon Brandon Adams, who's the founder of 1689 Federalism, on to sort of explain Baptist uh, federal theology or covenant theology. So both of those are ep- great ep- um, resources. The episode was fantastic. My main understanding of the difference is that the biggest difference is 1689 federalism would say that the covenant of grace is the new covenant. Right. And where Westminster covenant theology would say that all of the covenants from um, Genesis 3.15 on are are the um, covenant of grace. And so the way that they kind of resolve that is that all of the, all of the covenants from Genesis 3.15 to the new covenant are sort of shadowy promises of the covenant to come, but they're distinct covenants from the new covenant and from the covenant of grace. So it, that's a big difference, but in the grand scheme of what the end result is, we, we end up in the same place. But the way that we get there is very different. Um, I think 1689 federalism, I'm going to have a lot of people who hate me for this, but I think it actually is sort of a a midpoint between dispensational theology and covenant theology. So if you had them on a spectrum, you'd have like um, dispensationalism, and then you might have new covenant theology or progressive covenantalism, and then you might have uh, 1689 federalism, and then you'd have Westminster. And the reason I say that is because each of those covenants prior to the, the new covenant is a distinct separate covenant that's fully distinct and kind of fully self-encapsulated. Um, as far as the rest of the confession goes, um, there really is not any major differences. Obviously, there's differences in sacramentology, Right. We have a different view of the Lord's Supper. We have a different view of baptism. And then there's a different view of particularly um, interactions with the magistrate, uh, which is the civil government, and then interactions um, with how the church is to be internally governed. So 
Westminster theology, at least in the 1646 edition, tends to see the government as sort of uh, a partner with the church. And that, I mean, that has to do with the fact that the Westminster Assembly, strictly speaking, was a committee of parliament that was um, called together by the, you know, by the government, where Baptist history tends to be more um, in conflict with the established magistrates in a variety of ways. So you see a different relationship between um, the magistrate and um, the church in, in those. Um, there's a really great resource. I'll put a link in there because I don't want to try to spell out the, the website. But um, that has the, the 1646 Westminster Confession and the 1689 London Baptist Confession side by side in a table and then calls out specifically where the differences are by using different color um you know, if it's, I think the code is if it's blue, it's a, um, a an addition or a change, but not a substantive one. It's just right. like a slight change in the language. And if it's Minor red, differences. it's a completely different section or a very different theology that's being presented. So it's extremely helpful. Um, does that kind of line up with your thinking, Jesse? Yeah, I can't add anything to that. That was a great summarization. And just like you, this is one of those things where I'd probably defer to somebody who's a little bit more well-versed in all the nuances, but Generally, it's just that. It's the sacramentology, it's going to be church polity, and it's going to be kind of the perennial credo and pedo baptism debates in terms of how that is reflected in the covenants, and then who is in the membership of the covenant of grace. But the tabular comparison thing is really sweet. That is banging. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes because the great thing about that is you can just surf to a particular chapter, and then you get to see it side by side, not just like you said, the actual two laid next to each other, but they've already called out the main, the major and the minor differences. So I think it's way easier to read because it's super overwhelming if somebody were just to ask you, well, tell me what the differences are. Tell me the scriptures that they interpret differently. It's That's kind of a big task. So somebody's yeah. made it particularly easier for us. It just lacks, like you mentioned to me before, it doesn't have the proof text in it, but you could easily cross-reference those yeah. with a physical version or otherwise. Of the confessions, yeah, and and it it is really interesting because um, there are some differences that are they seem like they're mostly linguistic differences, but I, it'd be interesting to be able to track down the reasoning. So I I wrote a paper a couple of years back on Article two point three of both confessions and how the Baptist Confession changes some significant things. I don't think there was a theological change. Um, I hope not because that's the doctrine of the Trinity, but there's right. some language changes that I think then actually kind of worked their way into later Baptist traditions in a negative way. So for example, um, article three of the Westminster says in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity. But in the London Baptist confession, it says in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. And then it goes on to say, uh, where was it? It says something about subsisting in himself. So within the course of that one chapter, they talk about subsistences and then also a subsistence. Well, the problem with that is that subsistence is the word for person. So right. there's some confusion, in my opinion, in that that um, article in the way the language plays out. So it'd be interesting to understand why did the framers of the 1689 confession make those changes? Um, if anyone knows of a good resource that explains that or approaches that history, I would love to get up my hands on it. Um, or I'd love to do a doctoral dissertation, but I just haven't got time right now. Um, but it, it, so it's a really some reading cool, to do first. Yeah, seriously. Uh, <laughs> it's a really cool resource to look at, um, just to yeah, sort of see where great. the differences are. And, you know, I never knew how different, or maybe I shouldn't say how different, but how different the, the language of, um, chapter seven, which is the cut, the section on covenant is, but the, there's a pretty significant differences between the two confessions. Yes. There are a lot of 1689, confession guys um, that hold to basically Westminster Covenant theology. But then there's this 1689 federalism that's also very interesting to me. Would you ever get a WCF tattoo on your hand? No, no, that's that's ridiculous. Not even think about it. Not even a little bit. Okay. No. All right. That was, that was not a question from a listener. That was just me. Yeah. Um, by way of example, the portion that you just quoted from, what's great is looking at this tabular thing Everything you just read is in the color red, so it automatically draws out to you that significant difference. In that same section, the only thing that's blue, which is a minor point, is just that the WCF references Holy Ghost, 
Right. And it's spirit, or he's referenced as spirit in the LBC. So just as an example, this is, it's almost like a fun resource to use to pull up a passage or section and just kind of see what the difference are by way of exploration. So I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, just to clarify um, what I was saying, because I messed it all up because I wasn't actually looking at it. Uh, it's Article 2.1 of the, the London Baptist Confession says, The Lord our God is but one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. Well, as I read that, that's one subsistence. The problem is that the Trinity is three subsistences. Um, and then right. when you go to three, it's there are three subsistences. So it's kind of like, well, which is it? One subsistence or three subsistences? So it, it, it's an interesting study. Um, I don't think that the London Baptist Confession of Faith is heretical or anything silly like that, but it's just an interesting way to look at it to see these differences. It's all good. It's all grace here, Tony. We knew what you meant. <laughs> Nobody was doubting that you weren't on top of that. That's true. I wasn't on top of it, though. I wasn't. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Next question. So this is from and from Jimmy, who sent this in via email. I'm just going to read what he wrote because I think it's good straight up. Okay. So here's his question. I had a question regarding the Reformed understanding of the second commandment. In the Old Testament, God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush and later leads the Israelites as a pillar of cloud and by fire. So for starters... I know much of what you said that sounded foundational to the confessional understanding of the second commandment is that God cannot be adequately represented imagery. How does that relate to God showing his physical presence in these OT examples? And then two, this is a two-parter. Second, would artistic depictions of the burning bush or pillar of cloud slash fire be considered a violation of the second commandment? What do you think? So this is probably going to be somewhat of a surprising answer for people who know me and, and know my um, perspective on the second commandment. So to we'll get at the first one, um, the they're called theophanies when in the Old Testament we see um, God appearing in some sort of physical manifestation. It could be him walking in the garden in Genesis um, 2 or 3. It could be um, the burning bush or the pillar of flame, the angel of the Lord, um, you know, the glory cloud that rests on the temple. All of those things are physical manifestations. And this is something that's been really kind of disagreed on throughout church history. So some, some people would say that this is God sort of becoming visible in a, in like a real almost natural sense that he almost almost like an incarnation of some sort. Right. So the question sometimes is, well, what's the difference between this and, and the actual incarnation? Um, others would say, like Augustine would say that even the angel of the Lord was just an angel, but it was an angel that the Lord kind of assumed or um, purposed for his own reasons to to reveal himself and so where i fall down on on theophanies is that a theophany is god taking and using a created media to present himself to the world so there is no visual um similarity between the burning bush and god and the reason is because there's nothing visual about God. So God doesn't look like anything. He's invisible. So any sort of visual medium that he uses bears no, cannot bear any visual resemblance to him. Right. So even the angel of the Lord, we can talk about as a created medium or even just God's voice. When God thunders from the heaven, those in most cases we can probably surmise those are actual sound waves that are being generated that the people are hearing, especially when you have the whole assembly of Israel hearing or something like that. Um, those are created media that are being used by the Lord. So my perspective on that is, um, and I hold this kind of tentatively and loosely, but those instances, I don't think they actually would be a second violate second commandment violation because you're not portraying the Lord visually. What you're doing is you're portraying the created media that the Lord assumed. So right. that there's a lot of disagreement on that. But as far as I know, that's actually an accepted position in a lot of the reformed world that would say like the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire um, or the angel of the Lord may be an acceptable thing, depending on what you think is going on in those theophanies. There are a lot of brothers and sisters that, hold stricter, I shouldn't say stricter, hold different convictions on that, that their conscience would be sensitive to that. So right. if you're in a situation where you're around other Reformed people who hold convictions like this on the Second Commandment, you should be conscious of 
what you're putting before the eyes of other people and what kind of potentially what kind of sin you may be causing in them by putting that before their eyes. What you're saying makes sense. What's interesting is I think I, because of my thinking has been in transition on this, like we talked about, I think right now I'm a little bit more tentative about it only because I get the difference, what we're talking about between representation versus the actual essence of the being, which in Christ we have in spades. So we, that that's outside the scope of this conversation, but what about the burning bush? That's a really good example because for me, I just think it always tends to go in a direction where we end up appropriating some kind of emotional response with that representation that then belongs to an emotional response that should only be belonging to God. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. You you can make anything into a second commandment violation. This mug right. on my desk could be a second commandment violation if somehow I I devote my religious affections to that. Right. But I think it kind of, you, you can talk about something that we can make into a second commandment violation and something that's inherently a second commandment violation. Right. A picture of Jesus is according to the reform position is inherently a second commandment violation. I don't know if you've seen those um, nativity scenes, quote unquote, where it's soda cans with names on it. Have you seen that on the internet? Um, yeah, I have actually. <laughs> so by using the names of the, um, the, you know, Jesus, Mary and Joseph and right, Rain, that's different. you make that into a, right. uh, into a second commandment violation, right. but a can that says Jesus or probably more accurately says Jesus uh, right, exactly. That's not inherently or intrinsically a second commandment violation. Right. And that so that's where it's like interesting for me because when we're talking about the burning bush, there's we really only mean one thing with that image, really only being pointed in one direction. It's not inherently, but I think our affections want to go in that place. We want right. to represent it as something that's holy, that God's presence is there. When we start to, I think, associate the two, just where my thinking's at right now, I'm I'm more tentative about that. So what about then so would you say, I'm guessing you would say if we represent the Holy Spirit by a dove, that's pretty inherent. Actually, no, I don't think it is. So this is, it was funny because you said this and I was like, should I say something? And I'll just let oh, it go. I figured it something. would come back up. So the 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 dove, there's a couple things. Um, the, the language in those pericopes, it may or may not be describing the visual appearance of a dove resting on Jesus. Right, um, the agreed. language right. actually probably is more like the Holy Spirit descended in the manner of a dove. As if. Right, yeah. in, in the, the way that a dove descends. But even if you take those texts to represent a visual, a dove actually descending, that all the people around him saw a dove come down and land on his shoulders, if that's a theophany of the Holy Spirit, or that the tongues of fire at Pentecost is probably a better example those things are not visual representations of the Holy Spirit. They're created media that the Holy Spirit is using to reveal something about himself in that moment. So the tongues of fire are actually supposed to be kind of like miniature versions of the pillar of flame that led the Israelites in the wilderness. The dove coming down, you know, is the Holy Spirit's representing something to the viewers and to ultimately to the readers in that text, in that way that that happened. But insofar as that's not actually a representation of the Holy Spirit's essence, I don't think that that is a second commandment violation. I personally would probably not utilize images of doves because of the fact that there's a disagreement and that some people feel very differently on that. But personally, I would not, I wouldn't go there with that particular thing. The dove is an interesting case. Because whereas the tongues of fire are pretty explicitly articulated in the text, you're right. I love when the dove is made to be like the end all representation of the spirit because the language is just an example. Like how do we describe the spirit coming down? It was like a dove alighting. If like they'd had helicopters, I don't know, they would have been like, it was like a helicopter came down. So it's almost like you can't say what you're saying is right on. It's not like the text is saying, this Holy Spirit was a dove. Right. It was just a metaphor or an example. But where I always get rubbed kind of the wrong way on that is just that now the dove has become, we have made it a representation of the Holy Spirit. Right. And we see it kind of in a Christianese type of way. It's meant to represent that. And what I'm struggling with is what like the Westminster Divines, I think did so well is trying to express that it's not just in the images themselves, but in the slippery slope of how you associate them in your mind, like can right. we reasonably, can the average person reasonably say, I can look at the burning bush and conceptually differentiate my affections and my emotions and my thoughts 
from this is just a theophany to no, no, this is, I'm seeing this as a representation of God. And I want to use it in that way, right. either in my mind as I explain something and bring the weight of that experience to bear or just in its physical representation. So I'm with you. I think maybe my tentativeness is more like I'm just trying to avoid that stuff Yeah, because it's, it's too slippery. But the distinction, what you said is, that's helpful, I think. Yeah, and I think um, it's always okay for us to make a decision to be more careful than we think we have to be. That's right. always okay for us to, to take more caution than we think is necessary. Where it becomes not okay on that arena is when you start to fence the law and make it so even crossing a boundary that isn't the law but might prevent you from breaking the law, when that becomes sin, that's when we start to cross over into like Pharisaism and stuff like that. Right. I wish I could like speak with the Westminster Divines because question 109 is the thing that I've been meditating on in especially since we talked about it last. And that's the one that's really tough because the language in there is against making any representation of God. So maybe right. it's just semantics, but are these things represented God? And I still get what you're saying, but the fact they're natural occurrences of God showing himself, not God showing him, but God showing himself in these things. But right. the representation, that's the hard part, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I would say... This is totally a lay person's opinion. Who who knows? I mean, we can we can probably get in touch with some ordained men in the OPC or the PCA to get their take on it. But I would say that um, in those instances, God is not representing himself visually. He's revealing himself through the use of a created medium in terms of symbolism and in terms of presence. So the like I said, the 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 pillar of fire bears no visual resemblance to God. What's right? The, the dove bears no visual resemblance to the Holy Spirit. But God is revealing something about himself. And he's doing that by means of almost like a, a real world metaphor of some sort. So the, the, there are elements of doveness that, that reflect on God's nature. Sure. Particularly the Holy Spirit in that instance. There's elements of pillar of fireness that represent God's character. So I just think we have to be really careful, but I also think we have to be understanding what those are because we can slip into very quickly into the mistake of thinking that those are visual representations, right. that God exactly. himself was providing us some sort of visual representation of his nature or essence. And that's that's not the case either. So we have to be very careful to understand those texts for what they are. And, and to not make the mistake of thinking there's a one-to-one correspondence. So like the three men who come to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, right? Augustine in uh, on the Trinity has this long reflection on that. And his conclusion is that um, it's no one person of the Trinity. It's it's an angel. It's just a regular angel that God purposes for his, his use. But he kind of goes about it in a way that makes it really clear. And I think this is the strength of his argument that this is not, does not in any sense reveal God essentially. And that's important for us to remember because nothing can reveal God essentially. Right. Our language cannot comprehend God. Essentially our brains cannot get around it. Visuals cannot do it. Even the Bible cannot represent God. Essentially it only does so and only can do so analogically. Right. Sorry, I thought there was more. No, no, that's it. <laughs> it was just Sorry. like a mic drop. Boom. Yeah, exactly. Really, that responsibility belongs to Christ himself, which right. is why we're differentiated between seeing him in the flesh is very different than trying to, and having that memory versus trying to conjure up your own or some kind of representation. Right. Yeah, this is tricky, right? I mean, I think this is good for people to think through. And even these other kind of things that we use to represent God. And I like what you said about trying to understand what's actually happening in that passage and how God is revealing himself. And when I kind of marry that up, or maybe in the kind of contrary sense, marry up the catechism against those passages, the way I've been interpreting that is the making a representation of God is it's okay for God to represent himself. We just got to be careful about how we represent God, even if we're doing it by order of second derivative, like yeah. how we represent God representing himself. Yeah. So it just, I just think it gets tricky and kind of all tangled up, but I think this is a wonderful thing to meditate on. But I think you've answered the question really well. 
there's a kind of a breadth and scope to how people feel convicted about this, but it's good to go with wherever your convictions are at. Yep, absolutely. Does that sound pretty fair? It does. Okay, you ready for another question? Let's do it. All right, this is good. We got people who think of like some really interesting things to ask. I don't know if that's a reflection on us or whether they're like, I have no place else to go, so I'm just going to ask these two (laughs) cartoons. They must be really desperate. Yeah, I think it's a lot of desperation. So this is another email. It's from Ryan, and he asks, there's a passage in Hebrews that mentions Esau basically trying to repent with tears. And so he writes, I take it that I take it to mean likely that he was unable to truly repent and change and not just say some words. He wasn't truly sorry enough to change. Is there an analogy in this to someone who seems unable to leave the clutches of a particular sin? How would you deal with someone worrying by seeing Esau in themselves and being concerned about being reprobate? Sure. Boom. Wow. So um, obligatory disclaimer that Jesse and I are not pastors. And even if we were pastors, pastors, we're not your pastors. So if you are a person that's struggling with um, this question about yourself, the first place you need to go is to your pastor. If you don't have a pastor, then find the closest um, reformed Bible-believing congregation and make a phone call. But um, I think that this question may be coming at it slightly wrongheadedly. I agree. um, Do you have that passage about Esau in front of you? Uh, I do. Let me pull it up. So what he's referencing is, I believe, Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. Yeah. And while I pull that up, you keep saying brilliant things. <laughs> well, I don't know about brilliant things. So um, the 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 account that, he's, that Hebrews is referencing is when um, Esau comes in and he is trying to get the blessing that Jacob has stolen. And he basically says, Father, is there no blessing left for me? So outwardly, he wants the blessing, and this blessing is the blessing of covenant fellowship with God. So that's that's what Jacob has that Esau doesn't. He is he is continuing on the covenant line, and Esau is not. And Esau outwardly appears very distraught and almost repentant. He's 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 got tears, and so Hebrews is commenting on that. And Jesse seems like he's probably found it by now. So if you've got that, could you read that, Jesse? Yeah, that was great delay right there. And I'm going <laughs> to read a little, I'm going to start in verse 14. The two phrases about Esau are at the latter portion, but without the context of the preceding two, it's, it's not that helpful. Yeah. So here's Hebrews 12, starting verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Yeah, so... This is an interesting passage, and I think we have to acknowledge up front that um, we have to be tentative because there's a lot of different ways to take this. Right. But the way that I understand it is that Esau is seeking the the temporal benefits of the covenant. So we, we might even compare that to eternal benefits, uh, but not eternal benefits. You know, we've drawn the distinction a, a bunch of times on this show that the beauty of salvation is that we get Jesus, right? We get God and we get fellowship with God. We get union with Christ. We get to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then there's these other benefits that come with it. Things like I don't have to suffer in hell for eternity for my sins. And it may sound silly to think of that as an auxiliary benefit, but in reality it is because union with Christ is so much better than the loss of suffering. Right, The fellowship that I have with Jesus and the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that I'm swept up into is so much better than even the remittance of eternal um, suffering. Now, obviously, those things are intertwined in each other because the eternal suffering that is is hell is the loss of fellowship with the, with the Father, Son, and Spirit. But right. what Esau is seeking is the temporal benefits of the covenant. And so he comes to Jacob and... And he repents, and I'm saying that in in, t- in quotation marks. He repents in tears, and and I take that to mean like he's he's feeling the sadness of sin. But I want to read a section out of Second Corinthians seven. Um, I'm going to start in 
I'm going to start in verse 8. It says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief presents, uh, produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness, uh, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So what Paul is doing is he's drawing a distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. And worldly grief is just an outward, um, it could even be an outward sorrow for sin, right? You can have a person who has, for example, committed adultery and has observed the destruction that they have wrought on their family and their friendships and everyone around them, right? Or you might have someone who is addicted to drugs, who is, is able to sort of recognize and grieve over the fact that they've lost their jobs, they've broken their relationships, they've destroyed their body. But that is a worldly grief unless it is combined with a genuine contrition for sin. So the difference between a worldly grief and a godly grief is that godly grief produces genuine repentance. So I think that where this is coming in and the reason that I think it's kind of wrongheaded is the second question is how would you deal with someone worrying that they see Esau in themselves and worry about being reprobate? A person who... Um, sees Esau in themselves and worries about being reprobate is probably more struggling with assurance of salvation than they are with actual salvation. Right. Now, I don't think that um, I don't think that the kind of common trope that well, if you if you're concerned about reprobation, then you're probably not reprobate. I think there's some truth to that, but I think that we can overdo that a little bit because there's lots of people who might be afraid of hell but aren't really concerned with loving Jesus, and that's kind of the definition of worldly grief, right? I'm scared of hell, but I don't really care whether I get Jesus in right. the deal. It's consequence based, right? So I think that if someone is seeing Esau in themselves, then the answer is not to um, kind of placate them with truisms about, well, if you see Esau in yourself and that bothers you, then you're probably not, then you're probably not actually Esau. I think the answer instead is to preach the gospel, right? So instead right. of, instead of trying to mitigate their, their frustration or their concern, instead we say, well, you know what? Esau, like Jacob had done nothing to merit the blessing. Jacob was just as unworthy as Esau was. There's nothing right. special about Jacob that made him more worthy of Jacob's blessing or more worthy of covenant fellowship with the Lord. However, God in his grace and his mercy chose Jacob before either of them had done good or evil. And if you repent and trust in Christ, if you truly trust him and you are changed by him, then he has chosen you too. Now, we have to be right. careful because that can sound kind of sort of Arminian when you start to reverse it that way. But that's the truth, though, is that the way we know we're elect is that we we bear the fruit of being elect, namely justification, repentance, all of those things that follow from union with Christ. Right on. I think the key to answering or addressing Ryan's question is understanding why the author of Hebrews is pulling Esau in as an example and what right. he's writing. And so the, I think, the, as I understand it, this example of Esau is kind of viewed as an exposition of the word defile in the text. Because when Esau set more value on one meal than on his birthright, he lost his blessing. But the author is going beyond just what's on the face there of that example to explain something a little bit deeper. Because at first, Esau basically regarded the act by which he sold his birthright as though it was no big deal. But then at length, when it was too late, he found out that, he had incurred this huge loss. And when the blessing was transferred by his father, Jacob, and was refused to him, there was nothing he could do. So I think what we're getting at here is like in that same way, those who are led away by the like allurements of the world alienate themselves from God and in a way sell their own salvation that they can feed on the meal of this world, I guess you want to keep the metaphor, yeah. without thinking that they lose anything or thinking that they'll actually be made happy or satisfied by doing that. So when Hebrew states that Esau found no place of repentance, I think what it means is that he profited nothing. He gained nothing by his late repentance. 
though he sought it with tears, because he had lost it by his own fault. So it's not, I think what you're saying is the same thing I'm saying, and that is the repentance we're talking about here is not necessarily like repentance unto salvation, but a better concern for the consequences of the action that took place here. Yeah. And that's the example that the author of Hebrews is driving us back into to understand what it means to seek holiness rather than to seek worldly things and to not exchange one for the other. Yeah, if you go back and listen to our Lordship Salvation episode, which is where most of these questions are coming out of, we talked about how we talked about Bavink's summary of Calvin. And one of the things he pointed out was that both Calvin and Luther re, um, they recognized, but especially Calvin recognized a certain kind of repentance or a certain kind of contrition right, right. prior to justification. And what they said is that was a legalistic repentance. And it was only a repentance that, that was sorry and sad for the consequences of sin. And I think the way that you explained what's going on um, with Esau and how that applies to our life was very insightful. Is that Esau traded the momentary satisfaction of stew for the permanent, um, the permanent blessing of covenant fellowship. And that's why the author of Hebrews brings in this idea of sexual immorality, even though there's nowhere in the Old Testament that associates Esau with sexual immorality. Right. It's because he was pointing to something his congregation was struggling with and dealing with, in that they were also, in some sense, trading the pleasures of worldly uh, living or the pleasures of returning to worldly living for permanent eternal covenant blessings that come with faith and ultimately justification and repentance. So um, I think we can probably, the the question about if there's an analogy for someone who's unable to leave the clutches of sin, I think that actually ties in pretty well with the next question. So we can maybe put a pin in that and, and touch on that in the next one. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the repentance here, I think, is not to be taken for this sincere conversion to God. I think it's only the terror with which the Lord would punish the ungodly after they have long indulged themselves in their iniquity. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true of the tears that are referring here. Uh, so, because as I understand the scripture, whenever a sinner sighs on account of his sins, the Lord is ready to pardon him. But as the tears of Esau were those of a man who has passed hope, and they were not shed, I mean, they were not shed on account of having offended God. They're really more shed on account of the circumstances. And so there is something for us in that to understand that, but it's more in a kind of a self reflection of where our hearts are at and our priorities are at, rather than saying this is an example of somebody being reprobate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get the impression that the, this question, and maybe I'm just misreading it, but. This question is almost presupposing that hypothetical person who really wants to enter the kingdom of God, but exactly. God will let him. And that, exactly. that is a person that cannot and never will exist. Um, exactly. Neither is there the person who really hates God and doesn't want to be a part of his kingdom, but somehow God drags him in kicking and screaming. Right. So there, there's well a said. presupposition here about who Esau is. Esau is not the person who really wants to be saved, but God won't accept him. Esau is the person who still hates God and still would rather have a bowl of stew than God. But in this pericope or this account, there's no more bowl of stew in front of him. There's this blessing exactly. that he's lost. And that's all he has. And all he can see is this loss of blessing. So that does lead into the, we'll do one more question. One final thing to set us up here. Yes. And the question is from Ryan. It's email. And he writes, your episode on Lordship Salvation helped me some, but I feel like this situation is almost the flip side of that controversy. Would assurance still be appropriately held if, say, for example, the sin that Tony mentioned in speaking to the other person happened week after week without fail? And I think what he's referring to there is just any kind of, let's say, deeply entrenched sin. How does that impact what we said about lordship salvation and assurance of salvation? Yeah. So this is an important question um, because we all have besetting sin that for one reason or another, the Lord has seen fit not to deliver us from. And when we talked about, if you go way back uh, to our harmatology section, when we were doing this systematic theology, we talked about the fact that, um, I don't remember which article it is, but the Westminster Confession actually calls out the fact that God, in his mercy and wisdom, allows his children to continue to fall into sin. And then there's a variety of reasons. Right. So, I think that in a large part, the distinction is not whether or not there are repeated sins being committed. 
because we all have, if we want to go by that standard, none of us ever for even a second love the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds. So if, if what the, if what the conclusion is, is that a repeated constant sin somehow invalidates our salvation, then none of us are saved because none of us ever fulfill any of God's commandments completely, right? Question 14 on the Westminster Shorter right. Catechism, what is sin? It's not just the transgression of God's law, but sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of God's law. And none of us are fully or properly conformed to God's law at any moment. So I think where the distinction has to be drawn is more in the arena of how do you, how does your sin affect or affect you, right? How How is it that you ponder and co- contemplate your sin? Do you look at sin as an enemy to be overcome, to be constantly warred against, to be struggling against? Or do you do you welcome sin as, um, as a pleasure that you can indulge in, right? If you're right. looking at this sin that you indulge in week after week, and, and you think of it and you have the thought in your mind saying, well, it's okay because I'm, I'm saved. That is bad, rotten, disgusting fruit. And if you have that perspective on your sin, that your sin does not bother you, then there's a good chance that you are not regenerate. Now, that's not the same as what the Lordship Salvation people are saying. Um, they're saying that you have to come to a perspective and that that perspective is part of your and your obedience and submission is part of your faith and thus is instrumental for justification. But if the fruit of your faith is that you still love your sin, then your faith is the devil's faith, not right. a Christian's faith. And that's different. And that may sound externally a lot like what people like MacArthur are saying, but it, it the difference is not in that statement. It's in the definition of what faith itself is. I think it's really important that we land on that pretty hard because yeah. we need to make a distinguishing mark between the activity of sin, which is true for all believers, and the dominion of sin, which is true for all unbelievers. Right. So I'm thinking right away when Paul wrote in Romans 6, and I have this pulled up, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And I think what he's referring to there is not the activity of committing sins, but to continuing to live under the dominion of sin. And there's a really big difference between those two, even though it sounds like it's just words. So the believer is no longer living in the realm of sin, but is under a totally different practical dominion. So again, to use Paul's words in Romans 6, um, you know, basically what he's saying is, there is a big difference than being beset with sin and temptation and living as a slave underneath its burden. So to paraphrase John Owen, our sin as believers should be a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. And I, yeah. I think we're basically saying the same thing, but I think so many people get caught up in that and your example is really good. So let's let's talk about real quick, just loving the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul impossible, right? Almost next to impossible. And even if you can do it for a second, the next second, you're likely not doing it as well, or you're falling altogether short. Right. So I think sometimes what people think is, well, I'm, I'm down with some of what you're saying, but I'm talking about like that besetting sin that I keep coming back to time and time and time again. Well, here's an example. If you can't love the Lord your God fully as you ought to, that's something that we're basically committing almost all the time. Yeah. And yet that doesn't automatically cast up a marker or a flag that says, well, these guys are totally beyond hope and therefore they're not saved because they have this besetting sin. And to your point, it's, I think, a mature perspective that can start to consider, well, how does, even though I know I'm responsible for my sin, how does the, the fact of the matter is that I continue to sin, how is God using that to shape and sand down and chisel off rough corners and rough, rough edges as he sanctifies me like his son? These are all tough things to consider. Yeah. But we need to make this big separation between the fact that it, it is like a decisive deliverance from the dominion of sin through union with Christ and his death that ensures that a true believer will not have the cavalier attitude that says, so shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Exactly. You know, that that's the difference for me. Yeah. And I think um, the the big thing, too, is that 
you know, when we did the Lordship episode, we talked about how the the assurance of salvation comes to us by objective and subjective means. So I'm going to read Article 2 of Chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession. It says, This certainty, speaking of the assurance of salvation, this certainty is not a bare conjectural or probable persuasion grounded upon fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon divine truth of the promise of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. So as we talked about, the the objective, um, the objective assurance of our salvation comes from first the promises of Christ, and what is promised to us in salvation. And second, from the presence of the Spirit in our life who testifies to us, and he is the seal of our inheritance. Right on. And so the, the way that I think that this plays into effect with this particular question, and this is where you know what I said earlier, is that if you're looking at this, when you look at your life and you think of the promises of Christ in salvation, Right, He promises to deliver us from the dominion of darkness and to justify us and to give us give us righteousness. But he also promises that we will be conformed to his image so that we will truly and, and genuinely glorify God. Right, He accepts our good works on the basis of Christ's good work. Now, if your life is such that you think, you look at your, your sin and you can say, I know that Christ promised that I would make progress, but I haven't made any progress at all. That is not a good sign. Right. But at the same time, we have to recognize that that a lot of times we get focused on like one particular element of our life. Right. So you might have a guy and most of our audience is men. So it, there are women that struggle with this too, but you might have a guy that struggles with internet pornography. Right. And, and, Every time he does it, he feels sick about it. He hates the fact that he's dishonored God. He hates the fact that he's dishonored his wife. He hates the fact that even though Christ died for these sins, he just can't break away from it. That is very different than someone who, yeah, maybe feels a little bit guilty, but whatever. You know, nobody saw it, didn't really hurt anybody. Right. That's very different. The promises of Christ are that we will make progress holistically, that we will be conformed holistically to his image. Now, if you're one of those people that struggles with internet pornography, you probably are only seeing, you're only focused on the fact that you're not making progress in that area. There are probably a lot of other areas in your life that you need to assess as well. So we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of only assessing one area of our life, only looking at one part of our fruit. Because the fruit of salvation is very broad. It's very comprehensive. So I just want to caution people against fruit checking is fine. It's it's an important function in the Christian church. It's an important function in the life of a believer, as long as it's based on and derivative of the promises that Christ has made in the gospel and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Right. So I don't want people to get too bogged down in it because it's it can be really soul crushing. Um, and I feel like this question is almost kind of drifting that direction because like I said, there are besetting sins in our life that the Lord has allowed us to continue to struggle through for a variety of reasons that we may never know. That does not mean that your fruit is rotten comprehensively. The fact right. that you hate that sin, genuinely hate that sin because it offends God, that in itself is good fruit. So just look to the promises of Christ Look to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Seek the aid of your pastors and your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and don't get don't get too mired in the depths of trying to fix that one particular sin. You should always fight against sin. But sometimes we just have to recognize you have to do what you can. You have to do the best you can. You have to keep fighting and recognize that at the end day, in the final analysis, we are going to be accepted on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not any any civic or civil righteousness we can muster. Amen. And on that last day, God will eliminate all of this sin. He will glorify us and we will be free of it forever. See, now we've come full circle because yep. for me, this is about getting back to the simplicity of the gospel. Yep. So that's what's the wonderful thing is we tend to overcomplicate it sometimes and is really good reformed intellectual heady folks. I think we have to be careful. Like you kind of cautioned in the last question, 
not to create oxymoronic categories that don't exist. So it's better for us just to continue to come back to Christ. I think you have to worry when you have a settled disposition towards your sin. Yeah, That's the place where we should start to say something is truly wrong. But other than that, I think everything you just said was great. And I would just add, go please ask your pastors these same questions. Yes. (laughs) You can have a great conversation in person around this and really spend some time praying through these and having some wonderful fellowship. So to that end, let's at least give the number again because we'll do this again next month, right? Yep. So what's the number again? So people want to call and either say all kinds of ridiculous things to us or ask questions. That would be... 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. All right, Tony, take us home. Well, thank you for all your voicemails and emails. We love doing these episodes. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm far from home? Oh, brother, I will hear you call. What if I lose it all? Oh, sister, I will help you. Smooth like butter.